There we go. All right, so we are going to talk a little bit about funerals. You should be experts on death by this point because of all your work with our dear Casey. Um, but I thought it might be, okay, I had fun doing this, but I realize that may not sound right, but I find this fascinating and rich, and I hope you will too. In life and in death, we belong to God. So here's where we're headed. Well, sort of literally, but um, <laughs> we're going to talk first about what we carry with us, early memories of death or funerals, the way we've always done it or not, some historical background, a closer look at the service of witness to the resurrection itself, and then pieces of the puzzle, the gift of planning ahead. So, what we carry with us. I'm not going to do large group discussion, but I invite you to reflect for a moment. What is your earliest memory of death? And with that, what do you remember from the first funeral you attended? Any quick memories that pop into your mind? Oh, wow. That's a memory. I remember going to my grandfather's funeral, and I was a sophomore in high school, and his sister, my aunt, reprimanding me for being teary. We don't do that in church. Sorry, Aunt Rhody, I do it all the time in church. <laughs> All right, so the way we've always done it, or not, um, I'm just going to say up front, I get a lot of this material from this book, and it is, if this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, it's a really good book. Tom Long is um, retired at this point, he's a preaching professor, but also a worship professor, and if you happen to listen to Kate Bowler's podcast, he has a conversation with her. And I heard that has informed this as well. So in this book, he says, the Christian church began in Roman-occupied Palestine as a group within Judaism. We know this. As such, early Christian funeral practices were woven from threads, borrowed first from Jewish and then from Roman death customs. So we are not going to cover the whole history. We're going to sort of drop in at some different moments but I think you'll, well, I think it's fascinating. So, first, in Jewish funerals, in, and this is in the first century, if you have Jewish friends, you will recognize some of these pieces that they have been consistent in carrying through. Family members would play an intimate role. They would close the eyes of the deceased. They would place a cloth in the bodily orifices. They'd close the mouth of the corpse and tie it shut with a cinch, they'd wash the body and anoint it with aromatic spices, which some of this should um, ring bells if you've paid attention to the Gospels, right? The body would then be wrapped in linen cloths, again, sound familiar, and placed on a bier 
or in a coffin. When all of the mourners had gathered, the body was carried by pallbearers to the place of burial. And the mourners would go with them, and the family would go with them, and occasionally paid flute players. So you may remember in Matthew 9, the centurion's daughter, the, paid, the mourners that were making such a fuss. Remember when Jesus tells them to be quiet? That's a little bit of this. There were small family tombs. And there was a brief service at the tomb itself. And then how many of you have prepared or delivered a meal either to a family or for the fellowship house for a family ahead of a service? All right, I want you to pay attention to this next one. Meal at the home of the deceased for male mourners. <laughs> Which, of course, we chuckle. This was because of the strict division between men and women, right? Um, I, for one, am very grateful to be fed funeral meals at First Press. Um, so the burial ritual lasted just a few hours, right? If you may remember, in, in the Jewish tradition, bodies are buried very quickly, if at all possible. So it lasts just a few hours, but then the mourning rituals take much longer. And this a lot carries through um, today, right? They recite the Kaddish for a year, which we're going to do together in a moment. It is a prayer, and it's for a year, and it is daily in the synagogue, sometimes at home, but usually in the synagogue. And then there's Shiva, which lasts seven days. They do visit the tomb during the first three days. Why would they do that? Make, well, there's that. What else? Well, there's that, but, but a real pragmatic thing. They want to make sure the person's actually dead. Oh. <laughs> right? I know. I know. So that's part of it is um, to check on it, to mourn, but also uh, in this book, it talks about premature burial not being an entirely unknown phenomenon. And the Palestinian Jews shared a common Middle Eastern view that the soul of the deceased lingered near the body for three days. But when three days had passed and the inevitable change in facial appearance made it clear that death had indeed occurred, the resigned spirit departed. So what other biblical story? Whose tomb did they go to after four days? Do you remember? Lazarus. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's the significance of that fourth day. So then Shloshim, which is up to 30 days, and this is what the family does. This is the family is still um, in mourning. Everybody else kind of goes back to normal for the most part, but they um, don't have social events. They don't cut their hair. Um, it's also during this time where couches were turned over because you were not supposed to have intimate relations. Then, after a year of mourning, Oselegium, secondary burial, I'm guessing um, somebody knows what uh, may uh, physicians, os, bone, exactly. They buried the bones. It was a secondary burial. Um, and they, um, there was this tension, right, between touching a dead body. If, you're, if you touch a dead body, you are ritually unclean for seven days. Where does that matter? 
Is that just something you go about and everybody treats you like you're verboten? Not as much. That's sort of a trick question. Ritually unclean means you cannot worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Amy Jill Levine loves to push back on Christians who think that we've got this, we're dismissing these codes all the time. Because the reality is, the family members, of course they're going to care for the body. This is one of the most tender and precious and intimate acts you can perform. So yes, if you're then going to go worship in the temple in Jerusalem, you will need to go through ritual cleansing. But it's not quite the... Not quite always the issue that we make of it sometimes. However, it is a thing. It is a thing. It's an important thing. So there's that. So this is one. I'm going to put up one of the earliest Kaddishes that has been found. This is this blessing, this prayer. And I'd like for us to read it together. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praised be his great name from eternity to eternity. And to this say, Amen. So this is the prayer that family members would recite every day for the year. What do you notice about this? The H isn't capitalized. Mm. There's that. Which hap- that's, that's probably not, I mean, this would have been in Hebrew, but yes. Who is this? Does this talk about the deceased at all? No. No. This is reorienting, reminding again and again that God is God and that God is in charge, and it's a prayer to God and kind of a reorienting um, even in death. It's interesting that Long talks about, this is still prayed by Jewish mourners now, and it comes at the end of the service so that everybody there helps pray it. Um, but it's interesting, he had a conversation with a man who is was not a practicing Jew, but had grown up Jewish, and when his father died, I think it was his father, he talked about kind of this, initially it felt like a burden, but then toward the end of the morning period, it came to feel less like binding and more like girding. Those were the words that he used, that it was strengthening him and giving him hope, um, which I found, found that fascinating. There are times I deeply envy our Jewish brothers and sisters because of some of these regular, regular rituals that they have woven in through. Anything about that before we move on to Roman practices? Sure, a little different. All right. So, as death drew near, family members and close friends gathered to offer comfort and express grief. This is kind of a universal thing, right? Then they would, in preparing the body for death, part of this involved stretching out the hands and the feet. Sort of preparing the body. Then there was this practice of a last kiss. It was the nearest relative, and the the hope was to catch the soul as it departed the body. After death, they would tend to the body and lament loudly. 
Prepare the body after death, washed and anointed with oil, covered with a cloth or a tunic. Those are pretty similar to what we heard, right? And then a crown-like wreath for a prominent male, and a coin placed under the tongue to pay the fare of Charon. The, the one who takes you to the afterlife. So it's to pay the fare. I think, if I'm remembering my Roman mythology, right? Wasn't it a, it's a boat, right? So then we move to the funeral. They were fairly elaborate. I think um, the more I read about it, that's an understatement. They were always held at night. And the body was carried on a bier, four to eight men, more carriers, meant you were wealthier, in a procession with torches. Mourners wore black and red, which were the colors of death. Once they arrived at the place, the burial or cremation took place then. They cremated all but the os resectum. A finger or other small body part which had been removed before the um, cremation happened. Then it was all buried together. The ashes and bones were drenched in wine and then buried. Jewelry, dishes, lamps, pets, and games were buried with the deceased to go with them into the afterlife. Yeah, the pets were cremated along with them. I had a hard time typing that. <laughs> also, a ritual sacrifice to make the burial site legal according to Roman terms. Usually a pig. <laughs> Barbecue. Funeral feast is our... <laughs> Sorry. Bad, Ellen. The funeral feast was eaten at the grave and then followed a nine-day mourning period. So we're seeing some patterns like for some prescribed things, but there's some differences and parallels. Family returned to the grave for another meal at the end of those nine days, which involved pouring wine on the grave and leaving food for the deceased. And on the deceased's birthday and during the annual festival of the dead, the family would return for another meal. Just have a whole meal right there. And these were raucous occasions long, right? Lots and lots and lots of wine. In fact, graves were built with pipes running under the surface so that the deceased portion could be sent directly to them. All I kept thinking about were those tubes that when you would go to the bank teller, right? The, that's, what I, that's what came to mind. I'm not sure that's accurate, but that's what, that's what came to mind. Yeah, so just a little different. There's some differences. All right, so we're going to move on. Remember that quote, we're pulling from threads from both traditions. Yes. On the stage, and I want to ask you that. Yeah. The Jewish tombs. Yeah. Were they always above ground, and, and the osses, osses were where? Yeah. When the bones became evident, they were buried. Is that how that was? They were put in the tomb. Sometimes it depended on the wealth of the family, from what I can understand. Like some have these private tombs and with rooms in them, kind of like um, Joseph, like the one where Jesus is buried. From, as I start to sort of work backwards on it, it wasn't necessarily just one room in that. So you think they were all tombs? Everybody's buried in a tomb? Not necessarily. I think poorer ones were buried in the ground. I think there was, I'm not sure there was a consistent pattern, and some of it was what he could afford. 
um, which also plays out with some of the Roman practices as well. In reading, Long talks about cremation goes in and out of fashion in the, um, in the early centuries. And um, it's a big deal to be able to be buried at first and a pricey deal, and then it becomes more the thing that more um, impoverished folks do. And the richer folks are able to build the big sarcophagus and all that kind of stuff. So great question. Doesn't seem to be just one thing. So this will come as no surprise. We've already talked Christians gathered at the bedside, right? I mean, that's, we've seen this sort of consistently across these traditions. Christians also would offer a last kiss, but it's not an attempt to capture the spirit of the dying, but as a tender gesture, like sharing the peace of Christ as they would have in worship. Kiss of peace. No coins in the mouth. Instead, they would try to have communion as close to death as possible. Nourishment for the journey. And in fact, some of the early church fathers had to push back because some would try to sort of hedge their bets and would try to feed communion to someone who was already deceased. And they said, no, that, no it's, it's not a good luck charm. It's not the coin. Right? It's a living remembrance. But, you, but the communion, Eucharist, is an important theme throughout the early Christian um, tradition. So the dead were tended to with care, eyes closed, body bathed and anointed, dressed in a linen cloth, or the deceased nicest clothes, which, again, early church fathers would push back on because that got to be a thing that the wealthy would sort of show off more and more and more, and they kind of... Um, push back on that. And no crown or wreath. Sorry, prominent males. God is the Christian's crown. So, we heard about those loud Roman displays of grief. Those are replaced with reverent quiet, chanting of the Psalms, and singing of hymns. And Long lifted up this passage from 1 Thessalonians that Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And there was a gradual shift from red and black mourning clothes to white, garments of baptism and eternal life. And the services were held in broad daylight, and this is an intentional choice to separate themselves from these pagan practices of carrying the torch and being at night and that kind of thing. It's um, an intentional, deliberate distinction. So then at the grave site, they would have a service, prayers for the deceased, occasionally a sermon, but it wasn't required, wasn't always the case, kiss of peace on the forehead or cheek, and a final word of farewell, may you live in God, rejoice forever. And then the body placed in the ground. So, Hugh, to answer your question, burial seemed to be initially the, the primary thing. And then a Eucharistic meal, either at the grave or in the home. So they'd share communion, either at the grave site or back at home. And I did not see any mention that it was only men. <laughs> All right, just as a yes, what similarities or differences do you notice and what questions are there? There are a lot of differences. What differences are there? Well, 
to you is a difference. Either between the two. Yes. We don't have specific times for mourning now. Right. 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 It appears that the body was more prominent in the older days, less prominent as we go forward. Yes. And actually, the absence of the body is a very new development. Long wants us all back. If he had his druthers, he would have the, the casket in the sanctuary with the body, and we would take the body with, to the burial ground. So how did cremation become so now popular? It became, part of it was space. I mean, like you, I've been um, reading about Père Lachaise in Paris, and um, famous cemetery. I mean, you run out of, like New York City does not have a place to bury a body anymore, from what I understand. Right. Right, Memorial Garden, right. I mean, like we, space becomes an issue. There's, and then, and some others, as we'll talk about sort of the development of Christian practices, some, some things happen in um, relatively recently as far as um, what has changed our practices. Some of them are pragmatic, some of them are sociological and historical. Well, historically, people would have the body in the home. Right, right. And just part of the whole right. process. Right, um, I have a sweet story about my grandparents if I could share. My grandfather was a coal miner, so my grandmother would bathe him as he would come home every day, in, you know, in his underwear, but in a tub. Yeah. And when he died, before she called anybody, she bathed him and dressed him. Yeah. And then called the family to say that he passed away. Yeah. I mean, that was... And it's lovely, isn't it? I mean, that's something, um, yeah. He was 80 years old, but still. But she, still. She but still. put him in the tub, bathed him, put him on the bed, and clothes. Yeah, and that that happens still in Christian circles, but it hap it is a in um, in Islam and in Judaism that is still like in in the Muslim tradition there are folks at the mosque that is their duty and their honor to bathe the body and tend to the body and um, still in Judaism one of the things um, that Long talked about in this conversation with. Um, Kate Bowler was that they would sing and they would sing the song of songs about talking about the beauty of the body and they would quote to the body, you are beautiful, you are God's beloved. Which I mean, gives me chills. I think about how we have, we have moved away from a lot of this. Um, just in our whole approach to body anyway, but um, especially in death. Ellen, can yeah. you comment on um, the fact that we are seeing more and more families have a fairly length of time between death and when there is a service. And I don't know if, if it started with COVID and travel being challenging and crowds being challenging. What are families doing? If they, I mean, I've seen some that have waited a long, long time. It is an excellent question. And um, we, we're going to talk about it. So can we put, we want to because there's all sorts of reasons behind it okay. and practices, but it's a great question, really great question. So what happened to communion? We yeah, don't. right. Well, we, as part of the Book of Common Worship, sort of the order of service, we could include communion. Session has to approve communion, but I'm sure Session would approve it after the fact, Without, a, but we'd have to have people. It just hasn't been the norm, right? Our Roman Catholic siblings, right, it's a funeral mass. Right? You don't have mass without the mass. Right? What else? Yeah, Hugh. 
you know, you asked, you asked early on, do you remember your first funeral? Yeah. And of course, I distinctly remember it because my granddaddy. Mm -hmm. And I was eight years old. I remember it so well, it's like yesterday. It was in the front park. But, but then later you said there was wailing involved in funerals. And it, there was a great deal of wailing that day. And I wonder, I hadn't much heard of it. Has anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. Absolutely. I think some of it was there, the difference in this, in some of these traditions, like in the Roman and even and some in Judaism, these paid more like this, this crying out, like almost there was somebody who had a role to play. I have, yes, I've experienced it um, presiding at funerals, family members who just absolutely just well, dissolve in grief. One of the waivers to this day of doing it, she denies it. Interesting. <laughs> That, that sounds like a longer conversation. <laughs> she doesn't remember it. <laughs> gotcha. Yes, Doug. Uh, one of the biggest differences between then and now mm -hmm. is for the first time, we have some control over when a person dies. And mm -hmm. that changes your whole perspective Absolutely. in terms of Absolutely. the process. Absolutely. The, the practice of giving communion and trying to have that be like right at the end. You know, it was a guest, so I mean, they were doing communion every day and maybe multiple times a day, trying to, trying to catch it at the right moment. And um, we have, with some, in some cases, we can pretty much know when that last moment's gonna be, right? Right, we, we, we said that. Mm -hmm. It's taking them off a respirator. Exactly. Or taking them off other life supports, so. That brings up some other issues at Absolutely. the church and so forth as to how Absolutely. those discussions need to be held. Absolutely. And for those of us who take home communion to folks, if we offer to take it to someone in hospice or the hospital, um, if they're still with it, how might they respond? Some are really grateful. Others, what are they going to say? You think I'm going to die. You're coming at me. This, we don't do last rites, right? So there's a there's a tension, right? I think we have just had such big denial about you live and you die. Absolutely, hundred percent chance we're not getting out of here alive, right? And the fact that somebody does a great mistake, or ain't it awful? Oh, I mean, you live and you die. You do. We keep people alive much too long when okay. they're not really yeah. alive, and and then. I've always been a frozen chosen, but I just think we miss out on not in squelching the process of grief. Preach on, my friend. Preach on. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's something which is probably going to wind up being a part two because I just have to um, make sure I don't go on for too long. Yes, Peter. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. I think we're probably going to talk here. current day, we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about it. First and foremost, I will say up front, it is a worship service. It is worshiping God. That is the first and foremost. But yes, there is lots of ancillary um, parts. Well, that's what that Jewish prayer was. Yeah. Worshiping God. Absolutely. That's all that was. Absolutely. And that's in our tradition also. Absolutely. The uh, deceased is not the focus 
but it's a worship service where you fit the vibe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more specifically about that. I'm thinking this might actually be a good spot to pause and sort of any other questions and discussion. Because what the next move is to go into a little bit more history. We cover, should we cover a little more history and then move into next time we'll do our funeral service and talk through that? All right, let's see if we can cover a little more. So here are some of the core convictions of the early church. The theme of the service was the completion of baptism and the church accompanied a sibling to the place of union with God through the resurrection of Christ. Taken as a whole, the early Christian funeral was based on the conviction that the deceased was a saint. Like last Sunday, right? A child of God and a sister or brother of Christ worthy to be honored and embraced with tender affection. So that gets back to the body and the, the sacredness of this child of God. And the funeral itself was deemed to be the last phase of a lifelong journey toward God. And the faithful carried the deceased along the way to the place of final departure with singing and a mixture of grief and joyful hope. That's packed. <laughs> right? But this is where the service was. Once, long use of the language of once the church got its act together, because we know that there was no one trajectory, right? The church didn't just suddenly, oh, we have it all figured out. It was a lot of negotiating, and he talks about things kind of galvanizing around the fourth or fifth century. So lots of accommodating different practices, and a lot depending on where you were, right? So this is where we were. Challenges and changes. So you had the Middle Ages, where the joyful Easter emphasis was put up against the Day of Wrath. It was pretty gloomy in the Middle Ages, so there were ideas around the plague, right? Numbers of um, religious wars, I mean, the whole thing. Um, this is interesting. My husband pushed back on this. He's like, not all Puritans. But Puritans bemoaned the excesses of Anglican funerals and tried to do away with funerals altogether. It's unsuccessful. <laughs> practice of burial in churchyards and or crypts so this is what they wanted they wanted to be buried near the table or the altar in other traditions so like if you go into cathedrals in Europe and you see these fancy schmancy priests and bishops and, right they're right there man their, their crypts are right there in the church near the altar and that's because on the day of resurrection, the first thing you're doing is having a feast with Jesus. They went to the seats, apparently. But that was part of the understanding of churchyards. You were trying to get as close as you could to the table. So still the Eucharist, right? So here's some of what we talked about. 19th century saw more substantive changes. You get the science, you get the embalming practices. Get Undertakers. There have always been undertakers to help the community, but it becomes more of a business, right? And becomes more of a thing. So that, you can delay it. 
Growing loss of belief in eternal life. You've got scientific method. You've got different historical discoveries that are challenging some of this. So if you don't back into we're going somewhere as a rule, then the ritual that points to that you may believe is empty. Right? So it becomes less of a something that people embrace. And there, he, um, he references um, a dissertation that I guess a religious historian did about the American Civil War and talked about the accelerated crisis of faith. There was so much death and destruction that it fueled doubt about a benevolent and responsive deity. So that too starts to influence things. And then the development of rural cemeteries. Again, it's a space thing somewhat. There was also a concern for health. There was concern about the gases that a decaying body gives off and that it wasn't good for us to be around it. So you wanted them out at a distance. At a, in, or, so the funeral was no longer a journey to the place of burial. It became a stationary event within the church building. I've served a couple of churches in Pennsylvania where they were founded in um, revolutionary times. So they have Church church. They have burial, but they're running out of spots. They had, they had, one had already run out of spots. But there was something really compelling and lovely about this one middle spring in um, Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, where we took, we walked with the body literally out into the churchyard to accompany this person to the final rest. It's like, this powerful. And we don't have that today. And so we can grieve the loss of that ritual, but there are ways, that's part of what we're going to talk about um, next time, is how do we retrieve some of this stuff. So just to um, go back over contemporary concerns now, there's a loss of a sense of tradition. I mean, we have a lot of folks who we do services for whose families have very tangent, some are really tied to the church, and sort of know what we do. But others don't, don't have it. So they feel, so there's a feelings of isolation and expectations that we should know how to do all of this. Right? Not sure about holding a service at the church. There are negative associations. Either they already have negative associations with the church. Or having it in the church means when I come in for worship on Sunday, I'm going to only associate this place with my beloved's funeral. And that's hard. And so it's courageous for our folks who do have their services here because the hope is if you're regularly a part of the worshiping community, we baptize babies and we bury our beloved. And we do all of it in the thick of community. But it is something that we do as a community. And then there is the pressure to make it special. Has anybody either planned a wedding or loved someone who's planned a wedding in recent years. <laughs> yep. And you do not want it to look like your best friend's wedding six months ago. Am I right? You don't want to look like anybody else's, right? You get this pressure. Guess what? Especially with the time delay, this is something we need to do. And I believe, and I think Long backs this up, there is a conviction. We've lost sense that our specialness is because we are beloved children of God. 
We don't have to gin that up. And all that we are, whether you are, whether my dearly departed grandmother could bake the best cookies in the world, could not parallel park to save her life, um, was a stickler for white gloves in church. I mean, all the, that's all captive in who we are as baptized, beloved, unique children of God. We don't have to make it. It's not the memory, making sure we grasp all these memories that makes that person always remember, right? Long very bluntly points out that there are people buried in cemeteries who no one remembers except God and the saints. And guess what? God never forgets. So that's part of what we want to talk about going forward as far as looking at our service itself. Does that make sense? But it's to take some pressure off. There's grace. Grace abounds, thanks be to God. All right. Dave told me I'd never get it done, the whole thing. So I still have, we've made it through 19 of 35 slides. So we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. <laughs> Any questions as we wind down and go? Ellen, you, know, you just yeah, mentioned that those in the cemetery that are only remembered by God and the saints. Yeah. So you're saying those that came before us that I guess are peers with the individuals that are, are buried there. And there's that person buried there is a saint, so are the rest of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we put such pressure on ourselves to make to make it memorable, to make it something we can hold on to, to to somehow convince ourselves in the world that this person is special and we don't want to forget them. And we put a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure on ourselves. That's what I see. That's what I, you know, I see that it's, it's been, well, not all very recently, but mm -hmm. more recently than I grew up in New was of this having to talk about, you know, the parallel parking or the right. cookies right. or something like right. that. I never remembered that being part of funerals before. It was a lot of music and things like that. It was more worshipful, I guess. Sure, and there, and I think what the balance that we took, because I've also heard folks lament to me, you know, I've been to funerals and the past one was, the person's name wasn't even mentioned. So there's a, I think the church, I and mean, the way I try to approach it, is that there is a balance between it's a personal, there's no generic funeral because there's no generic disease. There's just not. At the same time, bottom line, we I feel convicted that we've got to retrieve our identity as baptized, beloved children of God. That, that it matters that that's our core identity. And all the others, it's lovely. I mean, that's how we know people. It's embodied, right? They're not just a spirit. Nope. The body matters. Nobody's ever going to remember me as playing up against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Not going to happen. <laughs> right? Nor is anybody going to remember me as Shine, I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. I grew up in a small Presbyterian church, and we always took the body to church. I mean, that was just the yeah. thing. And it really was meaningful. Yeah. Not, even though it was, you know, closed casket, that presence mm -hmm. uh -huh. there, it just brightened front. It just, I don't know, it just yeah. always felt like they were in church with us. And that's part of it, is that, and, and it's something, so we have to find ways to retrieve that even if not. So we're going right. to, we're going to talk about that. Casey will let me do it next week, otherwise we'll be doing it. December <laughs> but, um, 
Otherwise, otherwise I'm gonna, otherwise I'm gonna be the fish with the big hook in my mouth, right? <laughs> Thank you.